Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Mandy. And this is Love Sober. The podcast for the sober and sober curious. Hi there and welcome back to Love Sober, the podcast for the sober and sober curious. And this week I am so delighted finally to um yeah to be speaking with Lula Benz who is um the founder of Trauma Thrivers and a therapist and um a TED speaker and many many things um and just you know someone that's been a great support to me personally and just a huge huge inspiration in terms of um, changing the conversation around trauma and our understanding of it. Um, so we always start, Lou, by just saying hi and checking Hello. in. <laughs> so how are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you. And thank you. I'm glad that we finally got there because I know <laughs> I know we've had this penciled in for a while. Yeah. Um, and I just want to warn you, man, I couldn't get rid of the dog. So if anybody hears any barking or shuffling in the background, I'm afraid that's what it is. <laughs> that's but so right. delighted to be here. And thank you. That's a very kind intro. Oh, yeah. Well, touched. Oh, don't. Well, guys, get me started oh, already. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we we always sort of start the podcast by talking a little bit about your journey um you know into being alcohol free and your sobriety and sort of what led you to that that part of your story oh, God, I guess. how long have you got um <laughs> how can I do it succinctly um I think I've been alcohol free now I never actually put a free date down which is I know unusual mm. I see lots of people kind of going I'm this amount of years or this date or that date and I don't know why, but for some reason I didn't note it. But I remember being sober on my 40th birthday. So I think I was late 30s and I'm now 54. So I think I've been alcohol free for 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So too long to remember actually what almost what it was like drinking, although it was always very messy. Um, and I had quite an interesting voyage into sobriety. <laughs> I don't tell this story very often, but I think there's nothing like being, you know, I'm using this as a bit of a confessional man. So I realised I was alcohol dependent um, when I was at the Priory already as an addictions therapist. So when I started at the Priory, I thought that my issues were food codependency and relational trauma um and I didn't think that a bottle of wine a night was unusual (laughs) and I think that because I came from a background of kind of rag trade and then radio and media and we all used to drink you know and so three or four glasses of wine a night was perfectly normal and then I remember I mean, I was at the Priory on the addiction unit for about 10 years. And I remember my first year um, assessing a woman called Jane, she was. And she sat in my office and I said, how much are you drinking? You know, what's going on? Can you tell me the story? And she said, well, some nights I'm drinking a bottle and then at other times I can leave half a bottle in the fridge. And I went well, I'm drinking that amount. 
what does that mean about me? And I remember being absolutely devastated because I thought I was going to lose my job mm. um, and that I was going to have to give it all up. And I went and talked to other therapists and other addictions people and said, listen, I, I, I really think that I, I've got an issue with alcohol as well. I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to stop. And so that was my breakthrough. But it, you know, it, it was brought about by an alcoholic stepfather trying to get him into recovery in my early 30s. It was brought about by many trips to the Philippines or Champneys or Thailand, fasting here, giving up that, stopping that. Um, and it was brought about really by at 24, I was given a wake up call of trying to stop drinking then and admitted to a psychiatric hospital. But then I kind of fell asleep again and I forgot about that for the next 10, 10 12 years. Yeah, so, that's really interesting because I think it was the temper like Holly Whitaker's um, work. They did a study that says that it, it takes about 10 years from the first time someone contemplates it or thinks about or notices there might be an issue until they actually sort of get a sustainable yeah recovery um, yeah. which certainly maps my journey I think you know the first time I questioned it was when I was about 23 yeah you yeah. know mm. me too because mm. I was not drinking normally even then mm. whatever normal is yeah you know, and I think we have this um, picture, don't we, sometimes of, of alcoholic or alcohol dependent, you know, and I prefer the word alcohol dependent because I think there's mild and moderate and major. And, you know, the major is, you know, uh, that that picture of waking up in the morning or drinking at lunchtime. And, you know, that's not the prerequisite, is it, for being dependent on alcohol? You know, it's not even about the amount that you drink. It's about how you feel and what you're using the alcohol for. And I was always using alcohol as I was codependency and other things like food to try and manage my trauma and to try and push down my emotions. Yeah. And I, as soon as you wrote that down, like I wrote down alcohol dependent. And I was like, gosh, that feels better. Like hearing that, you know, because it's like, OK, you know, but yeah, being able to put it on a gradient scale, being able to put it, um, you know, as as something that had an impact, but, you know, not lumping it all in one box. Yeah, um, no. I, I was a shimmier. I used to say shimmy. It was, a, a you know, a bit like um, I, it's quite rare to you to find somebody who is dependent on just one thing. So um, I think many of us use a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other to try and manage our state, you know, and, it, uh, 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 and it's about balancing that shimmying, isn't it, between all the different things that we use to, yeah, to try, to try and keep hold of our trauma or what's mm. underneath it. Yeah. Yeah, so if you, I mean, you mentioned sort of, being admitted when you were tw was it 24 yeah yeah, yeah. so taking was, things things back yeah. a little bit further uh, if you don't mind you know um, mind. talking about yeah the the what, what what was underneath it for you then and then what happened when you were 24 okay well I think um I didn't realize at 24 and I didn't even realize at 36 that I had trauma 
um, or that trauma was underneath it. And, I, and actually, I spent quite a long time thinking that addiction was addiction, you know, not thinking that addiction was a symptom of something underlying it. Um, and I had had, God, I think I've added it up, about 10 or 12 traumas prior to 21. Um, you know, the, the, the worst one and the earliest one was when I was four and I was sexually abused by the babysitter. And that kind of led me off on a path of, I don't know, just uh, that whole self-abuse, self-negating, you know, of yourself. And then all the other traumas added on top of that, if you like. So I got to being 21, 22 and was just the drinking was out of control. And um I was working for a company called Joe Bloggs Jeans. And I was at the Birmingham NEC at a clothes show exhibition. And there were some models and dancers on the stage there. Um, and they allegedly actually spiked me. And I didn't find out till years later, but I was spiked with LSD. And then that night coming back to London, I started to get really, really hypermanic and then Two days later, um, an ambulance arrived and admitted me to um, a psychiatric hospital in Epsom, um, which is now turned into a block of flats, would you believe? So it's no longer where a friend of mine actually lives, which is even more bizarre. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it's very funny. And um, so that was I was admitted with a psychotic break. But actually looking back. Uh, it was the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. I walked around Richmond upon Thames for about 24 hours and overnight, having the most florid visions. Um, and actually, it sounds awful, and it probably was at the time, but those visions kind of saved me in a way, because when I started to look back at it 10 years later, I realised that some of those visions actually came true. Mm. Sounds absolutely mad and crazy, I know, but it, 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 it was not great at the time, but it was really good, as I say, some years later. And, and I tried to get into alcohol recovery about 25 and I started reading about psychology and therapy. And I think I, I read Eric Byrne, Layman's Guide to Psychiatry and Psychoanalysis about 25. And I knew that stuff was going on, but I then went and worked at Capital Radio and I started drinking again and I set up Heart 106.2 in London and did all the events and parties in the park. And then I, I was off. And it wasn't until my early 30s when I was called out to a mountaintop in Umbria in Italy with an alcoholic stepfather. And I had to nurse him and get him back into treatment in the UK that looking at the horror of his alcoholism mm. and what was going on, that the light bulb again started to go, oh dear, I think there's really something here going on that you need to look at. Mm. And so how did you get from the media into therapy? What, what oh, was I went via um, personal training, NLP and hypnotherapy. So I ended up moving to Italy to help my mom and get my stepfather into treatment. And, and, and that was about 31. And then when I came back, I thought, oh God, I, ca I can't go back into media. 
Um, and I'd always been interested in the human mind and body, funnily, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, what's the quickest and easiest thing I can do? And so I trained as a personal trainer and I got a job in a gym. <laughs> I'm learning um, all sorts of new stuff I know, today. Honestly, I think there's, I must have done every job under the sun. Honestly, if you could go through the alphabet, I'm sure I've done most of them. And so I worked in a gym in Oxfordshire and then I did my NLP, you know, neuro linguistic yep. programming. So I did all of that. Then I did clinical hypnotherapy training. And then even then I thought, oh, it's not quite enough. So I went and trained for six months at the Priory in Bristol and did an addictions therapy course. Still drinking. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> get back to my hotel, my little half bottles, pour them out and think, well, I'm only having two. That's all right. But still there was... Uh, that underneath and then I thankfully got my job and then a year later woke up and thought well thank you Jane in yeah for your assessment because mm. that was finally um and I would say that the first year probably for me of being alcohol free was really really difficult if I'm honest mm. because I was at the Priory I was listening to life stories every day and all of my stuff was coming up all over the place um and so if anybody's listening who was one of my clients in that first year 20 years ago or however long I'm really sorry <laughs> um but yeah that was the journey to then about three or four years later at the Priory we started to uh bring in a woman that did something called a trauma egg and so trauma started to be mentioned rather than just addiction mm. you know rather than just addiction treatment oh well you actually and then I think I found out about the ACE study mm. which is the adverse childhood experiences scale and I looked at it and I went bloody hell I've got five or six of those oh well, maybe there's something going on here so it wasn't until I was a therapist that I knew about trauma and and I'd been in addiction for a while that it suddenly started to dawn on me oh my god it's trauma that underpins all of this and it's interesting that you said that you you know you were at that point you didn't even realize that you'd had trauma was that because you think that you was it because you just thought that that doesn't count as trauma or was it but because yeah, it was disassociation think, or a bit well of both? no I I wasn't about it was about minimizing really mm. it was about minimizing that my sexual abuse wasn't as bad as everybody else's because mm. it was a woman you know and my rape wasn't as bad as everybody else's rape because I was on rohypnol and therefore I didn't remember it and and what I realized actually um is that it doesn't matter whether you remember or not the body remembers you know so it's us discounting all of our stories and also for anybody listening you know people think that trauma is some one-off massive event like a tsunami or a or a rape or a war but it, it's not that's not how we define trauma you know and and when I learned that trauma is more not about your level one one-off big events but it's more your level two three and four well a level two three and four trauma a level two is about lack of connection or attunement from your primary caregivers 
you know, that you don't feel held or you don't feel safe or you don't feel witnessed in some way. And then level three is about the parental introject. So your parents and their trauma and what they might not have worked through yet. And then four, you've got the transgenerational trauma or the cultural societal. And so it started to make sense. Well, well, my mum's a Bernardo's kid you know, and was completely cut off emotionally until about 10 years ago. So it started to make sense. You know, I had birth trauma and was left in an incubator for the first month in hospital alone, you know, and you start adding all of these things up and, you know, near deaths and near drowning and falling through plate glass windows and being bullied and called names and you add it all up and it's kind of... it. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because so many of us compare, you know, oh, well, it's not as bad. And, you know, I'm not this and I'm not that. But it's it's not we can't compare ourselves to anybody else. We've got to look at our own internal sense of overwhelm and what that trauma, how that affected us internally. It's not the external event, you know, and we think of trauma as a as a lack of regulation, of an inability to be soothed, to be held through whatever that we're going through. And so, yeah, I think it's really important with clients that I work with that they understand about level two, level three, level four, and they understand what trauma really is and that addiction is a response to trauma. Yeah. You know, we're trying to change our nervous systems because they feel so dysregulated because of all that's happened in usually our first 10, 15 years of life. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, obviously this is why I was drawn to your work initially, right, because of my own trauma story. And we have had conversations around this of, you know, when someone, when I, you know, as we used to call it, big T, small T trauma, you know, of someone that has had experienced, you know, one of the big um, events. Yeah. Um, there was that that kind of moment. Well, hang on. How can I how can I attach to my own experiences if everyone's traumatized? Because, you know, where, where do how do I hold on to the importance of what happened to me? you know, and, and you really helped me to kind of this concept of con- comparing and this concept of understanding that it's not about the event, it's about how it impacts your nervous system. But not only that, it's the, the cumulative effect. Because again, I was doing that self-denial f- for myself. So it's like, I attach all of it to this one event, to this one evening whereas and I'm denying all the other things I'm denying the bullying I'm denying the feeling neglected I'm denying feeling unheard I'm denying all these other things of of stress or the burnout and because it's all connected to this one thing Um, so yeah it's been a really and and we hear it a lot you know in our community and from women it's like well I haven't had that happened to me so I don't understand why you know I've got a problem with alcohol and it's like yeah we've we've all had it a bit and you know I I'm not blaming um parents here and anybody that is a parent but you know 
it's very hard as parents or human beings to be in what I call our adult self or our ventral vagal. If we take it from a polyvagal perspective, mm. you know, when we're in green and in flow, we've got our social engagement system turned on and we are able to attune and connect to others. And really a parent's main job is to stay in ventral vagal. Because when we've got our social engagement system on and we're attuning, we can attune to our young. We can hear them. They feel connected. They feel soothed. Now, any bit of stress, any bit of upset, any bit of COVID and not being paid, anything like that takes us out of our ventral vagal into sympathetic. We're already activated and our social engagement starts to, you know, we're on our phones or we're, we're, we're not looking or we're not hearing or, you know, that's life. Life is really stressful. I'm not blaming anybody here, but children pick up on that because our main job is to be the scaffold to our children's nervous systems in the first seven years of life. Hmm. The first three, the most important, the, the next four equally almost as important, but slightly less. And if they get that foundation of nervous system attunement from their primary caregivers in the first seven years, we've got a good foundation. If we yeah. don't get that, well, we were talking about earlier before we went live about, you know, food and all the rest of it. Well, I wrote a food diary at the age of six, how I was going to have lunch and what spam fritters and stuff I was looking forward to at school. Makes me want to vomit now, spam fritters. But, you know, I was already writing down, this is how I'm going to soothe myself at the age of six. Yeah. Mm. You know. And I think, like, because obviously... I know a lot of our listeners are mums and I'm a mum myself and um, part of my drinking cycle was around the impact that I'd already potentially had on my kids and the it's never too late to repair yeah Let me just say it's never too late to repair it doesn't matter how old those children are you can do the repair work now. My mum and I are repairing still, and she's 79 and I'm 54. It's never too late to do the repairing. Yeah, and I think that's the, the, the key thing that I was like, you know, that I want people to hear. Yeah. You know, is, is that, you know, when you are that chain breaker, when you make that decision, when you decide, you know, for me, and that was such a huge motivator to change my relationship with alcohol, was that, look, all of these things are interconnected. I am my mother's daughter. She is her mother's daughter. We are all, you know, and men have a play part in this too. Yeah. Um, you know, um, your primary caregiver, the person that you feel safe attachment with can, doesn't have to be your mom. It has to be someone. Um, but also like, it's never too late to repair um, and be that person for them and you know co connect and and create those strong bonds and again some people might never have that with their mum or yes. their their dad yes. but that doesn't mean they're never going to have it with someone somebody yeah. yeah exactly exactly and then we become the transitional characters don't we yeah you know and and those around us feel much safer with yeah. us because actually it's all about safety really yeah and as you were saying before you know for you recovery is is love essentially yes 
yeah totally mm. so what helped you in the in the beginning to yeah um to to enter recovery and, and change your behavior did you use groups did you I did I did a bit I did I did use some 12-step groups I never used AA but I used CODA and I mm. used ACOA and actually I used UA because I was a chronic under earner oh I didn't know that was a yeah, thing yeah yeah I'm like writing it down interesting let me check that one out well I I think we have trauma in lots of different areas and you know it's not just looking at the one thing is it it's looking at the variation Mm -hmm. I I think uh, um, I was really lucky in that because I was already a therapist and in an addictions unit (laughs) working not not should have been there as a patient but um, I already had all of those people around me And then loads of my friends were sober. So I already had a really good sober network. Mm. And actually lots of people that came into my life weren't drinking Mm. or were in recovery. So um, I think it was that. I think it was carrying on doing the work. And I think it was the impetus that, you know, I'd seen addiction at its worst, really. I used to have to take my stepfather to AA meetings in Florence and drive him in Italy and, you know, drive him up motorways and stuff where every bar we would stop and he would have to down a pint and be in tears. And I just think, you know, having that kind of uh, image in my head and also the fact that I knew that I I knew that I wanted to do the work on myself and become a transitional character. And I knew that I wanted to go towards this mad vision that I'd had in my psychosis at 24. And I'd never would do it if I was still drinking because mm. I was just going to keep hating on myself. So, so those were really strong motivations for me. Mm. So you mentioned codependency and I know, well some people might know not know what it is or or how that because it's it's often a a, you know part of the the conversation part of the 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 journey to to change or so can you explain a little bit how that manifests for or manifested for you yes Uh, so codependency really um is about putting somebody else's needs above and before your own um and almost trying to control what people think of you as well, because you get your whole sense of validation or lovability through how people see you or judge you. So, um, you know, as a codependent for years, um, I couldn't say no to people. It's a complete please appease pattern where you don't really have boundaries. Everything that you do is for other people you worry about other people. And my codependency was primarily with my mum. So because, as I mentioned earlier, because she was a Bernardo's kid and didn't have her own parents and her own family, and I knew about her history, I think quite young, it became my job or I took it on far too early to do that caregiving role and to look after her. So I felt responsible for my mother rather than the mother being responsible for the child. 
Um, and so a lot of my journey of recovery has been about trying to uh, put my codependency down, um, which is interesting because, God, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization now. Um, most coaches and therapists that I've met are codependent to a certain point. Otherwise, why would you do the job? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's about letting the codependency go enough that we are the mirror for people, but we are not responsible about whether they do the work or not. And actually whether they do the work or they don't do the work or how they act doesn't mean anything about us. Um, and that's been the hardest recovery for me, has been the codependency, because it's not black or white. For me, drinking, I just don't drink. I mean, there's no that I, I don't even think about drinking, nor would I. I mean, I, you know, the first two or three Christmases were a bit odd. But then after that. Yeah. Yeah. But codependency, it can still come back in. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. learning that the difference of where you you end and others begin yeah yeah and where you where you cross over from an interdependent relationship to a dependent relationship isn't it yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah. and that that boundaries too isn't it and about you know how porous your boundaries are and you know how much you see yourself as separate to or part of yeah so, you know, if my mum used to raise an eyebrow at me in the early days or or look at me sternly, you know, that inner child and that 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 codependent part would be absolutely terrified, you know, yeah. or to even question her or challenge her or say no. And now, thank God. Yeah, I, it's equal. And I can say, you know, I don't agree with that. Or, you know, have you thought about this? I wouldn't have dreamt of doing that 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, and I do think you're. I mean, we talk we talk about K and I. You know, it's it's basically all boundaries. <laughs> like, yes. you know, all our work and you know the constant forever work will be around boundaries and checking in with that and going, oh, oh dear, yeah. <laughs> something. You know, whoops. Um, yeah, got myself in a pickle again. You know, yeah. where's where's my boundaries? What does that look like? Because, and I think you know, the majority of women in our community and probably listen to this podcast can resonate with that that thing of getting to a point where they were so overwhelmed and so and somewhat resentful or hugely resentful of where they were in their life that they outsource them you know their feelings and their emotions to alcohol you yes. know and and for me you know motherhood work all of those things you know it was just like I felt so out of control because I didn't have any boundaries and I didn't know what they were yeah that I felt you know angry and lonely you know hungry angry lonely tired 100% all of those most of the time and so alcohol was was the resource that I used to numb that out or to cope with that yeah Um, Whereas actually finding a voice and putting in boundaries and saying it like it is and not being a martyr, yeah. you know, on any level leads us not into persecution. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because if we're, if we're being, you know, if we're doing everything for everybody all the time and we're not 
saying it like it is, oh my God. And, you know, I remember, and I often say to clients actually, um, you know, a really good codependent will never feel angry because they've never felt angry. They don't even know what anger is. Mm. I mean, I think it took me about five years of sobriety until I actually felt angry. And I was like, oh my, oh my God, what is it? I didn't even yeah, know. What do I do with it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I don't think, as, especially as women, we are allowed space to feel anger. No. Um, uh, so yeah, I was definitely no. having a conversation with a client about that today. It was just like, look, you know, let's it's get that out. Angry. Yeah. yeah. You good know. to be angry you know it's a really necessary what well, I always say to people it's one of the five survival strategies mm-hmm. you know so if, if our f- survival strategies are to fight to fight flee flight to freeze to flop to friend codependency is friend please mm-hmm. appease or please be my friend please be nice to me. Please don't bully me. Don't have a go. That was me constantly. Flop is our depression, give up, submit, helpless, hopeless, powerless. Freeze is, well, we know what freeze is. Just don't Mm. do anything. Flight, we run away from it. Fight is we. And actually, I think it's quite good to be fluid and get our fight back, especially if we've been please appeasers. Yeah. You know, because the energy then is active; it's not passive. Yeah, yeah, and and that when we're looking at the nervous system, that's coming at, isn't it? Is that is that the balance and the yeah. the dance that we want between activation, deactivation, being yeah. able to then stay in, like you know, in the, the green, tolerance. in yeah. the window of tolerance. We need yeah. both. We need to be able to do that dance, um, yeah. which is what I guess what is so great about all of this and all the knowledge is then it's hugely empowering right isn't it because it's like no I'm not this thing or I'm not a label it's I am a traumatized nervous system yeah and I've been outsourcing to something or many things multiple things yeah to Um, stimulate or depress my nervous system yeah sometimes both and sometimes one or the other yeah or sometimes I'm more hypo and down and powerless so I need an upper yeah and sometimes I'm like over anxious and a bit manic and I need a downer yeah yeah and then it just gets like it's quite fun play right it's like okay so what do I do when I want when I need an upper it's like listen to disco you know (laughs) what do I need when I need a downer cuddle my dog and it's like and you become skillful at that toolkit for yourself yeah Yeah. which which leads me on to yeah what's what's in your toolkit what are the things that you sort of lean upon to help you to manage your trauma and your you know your well I I I I suppose over the last god yeah 15 years I've lent a lot on continued professional development and growth so even this afternoon I'm having an EMDR session with my therapist I'm working on another channel Mm. and I don't believe that it's a destination I believe it's a journey you know and I constantly work with my nervous system I think it was about seven or eight years ago that I I got into a position where I could um, shake and 
discharge and let trauma up myself you know and I think that's quite a nice place to be in where you can notice what's going on in the body however it feels and stay with it and be able to discharge it so I I've used so many things man I mean I meditation binaural beats um which is the kind of hollow sync stuff to my nutrition's quite good. I walk every day with the dog. I've I've let go of like really hardcore anaerobic mm. punishing. All of what I do now is about self-care and is coming from a place of love, not punishment. Um, even down to my food choices. Um, but I think that's such a key, like, you know, because we can get so overwhelmed with it, can't we? And and again, get into this like toxic positivity of like, right now I need to fix this or I should be doing this or whatever. But when you bring it down to that, that, you know, that is it, is it a decision of, of love? Not or punishment. punishment. Yeah. Then you know, that's simple, so, so simple, but so yeah. helpful because, yeah, I mean, that was, for me, it was just like, that when I made that connection of like I am my my brain is fragile you know I am a bit fragile that's an interesting belief to have ah yes <laughs> or do your brain was fragile well you know that your brain is really neuroplastic and is growing and developing all the time yeah I guess what I meant what I connected with that was that like um that I've been through some things you know yeah that I'd experienced some things and so you know at that point I was very connected talking about my mental health and my depression and things like that so it's like okay man you know your brain is a bit fragile so always choose the things that are going to look after you rather than hurt you and so when it was like that it was like well alcohol's never going to be something that helps my brain no so you know, anything it was, it was, toxic is no. not going to help the brain is it but no. you know, I think we can be I think we can be a bit all or nothing mm. I think we can be a bit black or white and how I put it is you know we've got our real adult selves haven't we which is kind of our present moment selves and then I always say to to people uh, and me I've got my critical parent and I've got my not okay child Mm. and my critical parent is like my teenage adapted self and it going you should look this you should be whatever you are you're not doing that okay and then my not okay child is like that oh don't be up on me don't and more the feelings or the felt senses Mm. in the body so I'm always saying to people you might have two polarities of like your all or nothing and depending Mm. on how they're wired up most of our decisions I think if they come from the middle path are kind of the kinder decisions to make in recovery because maybe the adult is more the window of tolerance Mm. yeah I always think of the not okay child a bit as the hypo arousal yeah Toxic positivity is all like, oh, stay in your adult and be grateful and write out your gratitude list and don't go into your past and don't, oh, you shouldn't be feeling that. It's kind of a little bit, I don't know, I find it a bit hard. Whereas if I know that we've all got an internal critical parent that has a go at us, 
and we've all got not okay children I always think when we're feeling emotional let's stay and love the child Mm. and stay with the feelings and be curious about the feelings a bit like that child were our own child because that's the recovery journey isn't it Mm -hmm. it's reclaiming those parts of us that we've previously disowned disavowed hated not liked, shamed yeah yeah all of that yeah yeah so so true yeah and so tell us about trauma thrivers tell us about your work tell us about yeah if people are resonating with this then what can they do to sort of well they can come and join us in the facebook group of which you and you and kate what you've been a couple of times i have yeah lives thank you um we try and do a thursday night live every week with somebody else or mel who helps me run the trauma thrivers group and we're kind of a mixture of clinicians and survivors really so it's quite a diverse mixture in there but everybody is very welcome um and my goal or aim or what I would love to do eventually is to write a trauma-informed recovery voyage that's affordable and accessible for all because I don't know about you I just don't think there's enough affordable treatment options out there and it really it upsets me that people can't access help but that's quite a big project if I'm if I'm honest with you I'm going to try and make it a monthly membership program and kind of charge 49 pounds a month and take people through the whole stabilization psychoed and then the processing and then the integration online Mm. which is interesting yeah Um, but in the meantime I'm working on something called thriveability oh I love it yeah yeah So it's your ability to survive trauma and then step into that thriving space, because honestly, that's I know I know that our journeys and books and programs shouldn't really be just about us. But honestly, I have such (laughs) a bloody job thriving. Yeah. You know, my version of thriving in that I I couldn't be visible and put myself out there on on podcasts or, or or even social media. I couldn't find a voice. I couldn't speak up. I couldn't speak from stage. I was terrified. My value and valuable was really low. So I couldn't earn really. I hated charge. Couldn't ask for any money Mm. that was owed to me. Um, One is validation, which is about um, being validated always by other people rather than self-validated. And the other V is vision. So you've got to kind of have a vision and have something to go for. So I'm going to run all of these Vs really first as small groups, maybe 10 or 12 people, very affordable. And I'm going to take them through the different Vs from surviving to thriving trauma. (gasps) I'm probably starting that sometime early 2022. So it's really looking at self-worth, self-care, self-esteem self self-value yeah though that kind of aspect that's what I'm really keen on and self-belief yeah I don't know about you but that was a toughie for me yeah that validation from and again it's like because when we people are like oh yeah but I don't have trauma and then it's like 
it's traumatic to be a woman in, yeah. you know in the sense yeah. of, of not feeling validated in your own experience well, or not or having yourself gaslighted from a very yeah. young age or having to you know your body being unattractive or exactly you know, your teeth spit not being right you know like all of those things that all of those yeah. things are impacting your nervous system in the sense yeah. of I'm not good enough as I am. Exactly. Um, so and, then and you so start... we're not free to thrive because no. if we think something's wrong with us all the time or we don't, you know, I, I, I did a meme ages ago, too fat, too old, too ugly, mm. you know, and I told myself that for years. Yeah. You know, you can't put yourself out there because you're too old, you're too fat and you're not attractive enough. Look at her. And, you know, we've got to stop doing that to ourselves in this yeah. Instagram culture. Yeah. You're you never know. too old. You're never too anything. You're just yeah. you. Yeah. And what, what the, your gift is you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And celebrating that. Mm. Yeah. And I, I do think it's, it's that that part of it you know, that validation, looking outside of yourself for validation is, is so important for, but it's hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think that's the hardest thing, isn't it? Because mm. we are in a culture that compares everybody and everything. We're in an Instagram age where, you know, we're in a, in an age where, you know, we date people on telly from the feet up. Yes. <laughs> You know, like, how is that even possible? Yeah. Like, it's so true. Personality and, you know, what you were like and your values. I mean, bring back Blind Date and the screen, dear old Scylla. You know, that was yeah. my age. Not, you know, what your legs and feet and other parts of your anatomy look like. Yeah. Just gone a bit mad. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. You know, so I just think it's hard, isn't it? to really have that level of self-value and worth and esteem in this day and age. And so what would be your access point? You know, if people are like, okay, great, blah, 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 but I can't do it. So what would be your first access point or a first tip or tool to start to value yourself or, you know? Put down the booze first up. If you're listening to this and you're not sober yet and you still feel that you're using it or, or it's a crutch, I don't think you can get to self-worth or self-like or even self-love, if I use that expression, until you've got a relationship with yourself where you begin to trust yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it starts with trust, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 So I think that is the most important step. And I, I think from sobriety comes so many other things comes a much deeper connection to ourselves and if we have that deeper connection to ourselves we can start to really connect to other people mm. yeah you know and that we don't need booze then why mm. why would you or I ever drink again yeah I just like the thought horrifies me yeah, doesn't same. even interest me mm -mm. you know but then we've probably cleared out our bodies and the trauma and done enough work on ourselves that we can ride the waves, hmm. you know? Yeah, I think that's it. It's that that ability to develop capacity. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is the toolkit, you know. Yeah, it doesn't happen overnight, does no. it? It takes, 
you know, it does take work. I'm not going to lie to anybody and say it's a quick six step process because it's not. Yeah. Mm -mm. But But it's it's worth it. Bloody worth it in the end. It really, really is. Um, And also we are, I just remembered that, of course, we're doing Simon Chapel's event together. We are doing Simon Chapel's event Um, together. January January the 2nd? Yes. Yes. Lucky we're not going out on New Year's Eve. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So if you'd like to see, yeah, Lou speak um, and Kate and I and Simon Chapel and Sober Dave and William Porter and I am forgetting people I think Emily oh and Emily Cyphers um Sober and Social and I and believe Annie Grace joining she's on Zoom. joining on Zoom I believe to do a live Q&A and I think um one of the this naked mind coaches is from America is flying over as well um, yeah, I'll put the link on the bio notes about that event, which is um, super exciting. You know um, what you're speaking about yet, you and Kate? Um, I can't remember. I do, <laughs> but I... <laughs> uh, I've got to finish a book first. That's like next oh, have year. You? Oh, wow. God. <laughs> yeah, we've got the book, second book deadline at the end of November. So my brain oh, is like, yeah, can't yeah, quite. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But it will be amazing, whatever we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, of course it will. <laughs> of course it will. What is it? Soberlive.co.uk, the website. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I'll put it on the on the show notes. Um, so we always finish the podcast with a tip of the day and your reason for love to love being sober. So what would be your tip of the day? Oh my god. <laughs> um stay with it I love it stay with it I'm only saying that because um I was thinking about the sober fest and what the song is that we have to come on stage with and the one that I've picked at the moment is Miley Cyrus's it's a climb Mm. and I think that too often we're sold this um you know, you can do it in this amount of steps or this amount of, and actually it's a daily enjoying the journey, enjoying the climb, knowing that each layer and each level and each bit that you get through, however hard is going to take you somewhere. Yeah. You know, and I know that my psychosis was a bit of a mad thing to end with, but you know, my final vision in my spiritual awakening psychosis was standing on stage with Oprah Winfrey and the Dalai Lama. I mean, God knows where that came from. God knows, you know, and at 20 odd or 30 odd or even 40 odd, that would never, ever, ever have even resonated with any self-esteem, self-belief that me, you've got to be joking. Now, I can kind of see it. Yes. I can kind of feel it. And it's not actually about them. It's not even about them. It's about the symbol of what it means Mm. that we think highly enough of ourselves that we can imagine ourselves being of value or free to do the things that we really dream about doing. So I would say to everybody, hold that vision but keep knowing it's a climb, it's a journey, it's not a destination, and try and enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it's, um, Kate, 
her one of her visions is having dinner with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ah, like, she's like one day. Know. Yeah, but it is. It's know. that aspirational, right? It's that yes. thing of like actually there. Yeah, there's value. There's meaning, and you know, and 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 it's just a symbol. Yes. You know? And, yes. and whatever that attaches to but it's keeping that you know within you of just like that that my life has meaning and I'm you know and I'm worth more than than what alcohol is giving me which is yeah. is a is false and it's a plaster you know yeah. it's it's a a temporary kind of solution um but it's not you're not healing in any way you got to take the plaster off to do the healing yeah Mm-hmm. yeah and so what's your reason to love being sober today um what's my reason to love being sober today because I get to do what I love I get to have a job and a career that I that I want to get out of bed each day for that I enjoy each day and that I I can grow and develop and keep doing what I want to do hopefully please God for the next 20 years of my life and I couldn't do any of that if I was drinking yeah oh thank you so much Liz it's been wonderful and hugely inspiring so yeah if you're listening and you want to hear more about what Lou gets up to you know please do join the trauma thrivers group it's free and it's a wonderful space um and as as Lou said you know there's a mixture of practitioners and people you know uh, who have had experiences with trauma so it's a really kind of beautiful mix of of collaboration and 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 healing together you know um, and what I love is that kind of taking away the hierarchy of it you know it's we're all on the same we're all on the same level yeah, um, with our ex- our experiences um yeah and if you're you know immediately concerned about your drinking please do reach out you know um send us a message at info at lovesober.com or you know um look on alcohol change they have really brilliant resources you know speak to your gp um reach out to you know someone that you resonate with on instagram or in a sober group um you know we're we're there to sort of support you so don't be alone because you're you're not um and we'll see you next week for more chats um so thanks so much lou and take care everybody thanks everyone take care